I'm John Moscow. And I'm Amy Halpern Laugh. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Michael Sanchez. Mr. Sanchez is founder and executive director of Circle Match, a program to help students in underserved public high schools navigate the college admissions process. Circle Match was known as TCAT until this month. Welcome, Michael. Hi, Amy and John. It's so nice to see both of you, and I'm so excited to meet all of you virtually. So are we. Would you speak about your own K-12 through and college admission experiences? Yeah, sure. I would love to. So on my end, I ended up actually going to private school from kindergarten through the eighth grade. And the reason why is because my parents essentially were getting divorced. So it just made more sense to go to a place that would to be able to go to the same school for a long period of time as opposed to having to like move a lot and go to different schools and different school districts. But then from there, we went through the, or we, I mean, me and my parents went through the high school application process and through a bunch of what I thought were at that point, unfortunate events, I ended up at public high school. And in reality, in retrospect, now I realize that this is one of the best things that could have happened to me, but I ended up at a public school in West New York, New Jersey called Memorial High School. And we're a Title I high school, specifically majority students are Hispanic. There's lots of first-gen low-income students and also lots of students who were ESL and multilingual learners. And so then from there, I ended up doing really well at my high school and I really loved the culture there and I was able to really thrive at my school. And four years later, I was named valedictorian, student council president, and a bunch of other really great awards. And I ended up being admitted to four different Ivy League schools so Yale, Columbia, Cornell, and Brown. And then I ended up ultimately matriculating to Yale. And yeah, I just graduated from Yale this past June or this past May. So here I am. That's my education journey and I guess the SparkNotes version of it. And how did your experience influence the concept for Circle Match? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what ended up happening was in preparing to apply for these high schools, even though I wasn't really ad- admitted to the schools I really wanted to go to and schools I did, I was admitted to, I didn't receive financial aid, so it wasn't feasible. I think having that experience of like an application process where, you know, instead of studying for the SAT, we were studying for the SSAT. We had like high school interviews as opposed to college interviews. We had like safety schools and reach schools and match schools and all of those different things. And so it was a very involved process. But I think having the experience of having applied to something so young, I then knew what a college application process would look like later on. I think there's also the fact that I was kind of part of this college going culture in that I went to an elementary middle school where the rest of my peers were all considering going to college and all had talks about that already at a very young age. And so when I got to my high school, those conversations weren't necessarily happening as much. Students didn't know if they wanted to go to college. Students didn't necessarily even like, they just didn't necessarily know a lot about it. And that's part of being in a culture where you're feeling disconnected from the college going, like nest, the college going process. And so that's kind of how, I don't know, that's how Circle Match first kind of started where I knew a lot about the college applications because I knew about high school applications. And so I started talking to my peers about applying to college. People started coming to me for help on like, What's a GPA? How does this work? And, you know, at this point, I was maybe a year or two younger than the other students who were asking me these questions, but I knew enough, so I tried to answer. 
And so what ended up happening was going to my senior year of high school, my mom was able to afford a college advisor who we essentially hired. We knew that our school, like my, the high school I came from, didn't necessarily have the resources to navigate or to help me navigate applying to an elite college. And I knew I had a solid shot, but I didn't know how solid of a shot. And so I remember during one of those first meetings, we were chatting and according to the algorithm that they had had, they told me like, oh, Michael, you have a 60% shot of being admitted to Cornell and like a 40% shot of getting admitted to Yale. And I just saw those stats. And I, at this point, these universities like Yale had a 5% acceptance rate, Cornell a 9% acceptance rate. And so hearing those numbers be so high for me, it's really weird. Like I never expected it. But then I think that college advising really meant that I was able to then attend these really amazing colleges. But then graduating from high school in those last final moments when I saw like our salutatorian got rejected to our local state school and people around me weren't really going to college or they weren't getting, it wasn't like affordable. So they had to go to community college, which isn't a bad option, but it's also these students were so compelling academically and just so intellectual where if they had the right resources and the right guidance and the right kind of handholding that's necessary and one-on-one attention, they could have been admitted to a really selective university with very generous financial aid offers that could have opened up a whole world of possibilities. And so the week before I graduated high school, I spoke to the principal of my school and I was like, hey, is it okay if I talk to some of the seniors who are going, the rising seniors? about the college application process. And then from there, that's how our college guidance kind of started. That's how Circle Match started. So how does Circle Match work? Yeah, I, I love talking about Circle Match works. I'm excited to share this with you all. But essentially, the way it works on a macro scale is we partner with different high schools. Specifically, we're looking for schools that are where the majority of students are on free and reduced price lunch. And we also look, we look for schools where many students are actually students of color. And we also look at test scores to make sure that the schools are, you know, I think one thing is that a school serves low-income students, but there's a whole other thing of whether or not the school has enough resources, you know? Is this a magnet school where there's an entire college-going culture by virtue of them having selective admissions? Is it a charter school which would also most likely have lots of parents who are informed about application processes because they're able to be involved for some reason. And so we partner with these kinds of schools. And then from there... You partner with the schools where they have the resources or with the schools that don't have the resources? The schools that don't have resources. And specifically, yeah, so serving many low-income students don't have that many resources. And then from there, we work with a cohort of around five students per year. And students apply for the program. Every student who applies, regardless if they're admitted or rejected, get personalized application feedback. And so what we do is we work with students from January of their junior year all the way through around January of their senior year is like when the formal programming ends. And so this covers them applying to multiple scholarship programs and also applying to college. And so our students apply to College Prep Scholars and QuestBridge. It'll help if I explain what QuestBridge is first. It offers four-year full rides to students who are low-income and who are, if they're admitted to some of their partner schools, which are some of the best universities in the country. And then 
college prep scholars is actually like a feeder program to that program. And so we just want our students to get iterations and iterations and iterations of, I guess, like applications because they've never had to spend a month on an application before. They don't know how like length, how much time is necessary for their application to really stand out because so many students who apply to these schools and apply to these programs have stellar academic backings. They've worked so hard, but now they need to be very thoughtful about how they kind of display that. And so then after that, our students apply early action or early decision to at least one college, usually a state college. And then if they have time college outside of that as well. And then afterward, our students apply regular decision to universities if they don't match or get into a school early action that they'd like to go to. So this is just very standard college application stuff for the most part. But my favorite part is because our students do not pay, we instead ask that they pay it forward. And what that means is they actually join the ranks of circle match advisors and circle match kind of staff members. And they are actually helping kind of make this operation really continue to work. And so what that means is a student will kind of, let's say a student applies to circle match, they're admitted and they're receiving college admissions help. By the time they finish the program, they've actually been empowered to the point where they're able to become actual advisors within their communities again. And so that kind of flips a script of the script of, I'd say, nonprofits as a whole. That kind of there's like this one nonprofit leader who is saying, I'm going to help you. And then the students are like, OK, sure. And then the students just don't necessarily have anything to like or I think the nonprofit treats students as if they have nothing to really offer, but we believe our students have so much to offer. Our students are these community leaders. And so in giving them access or helping them gain access to some of the most selective universities in the U.S. and in the world, you know, our students are able to become these leaders with, about college access. And then in doing that, we're also able to sneakily check in on them and see how they're doing in college, because it's really hard to navigate college as a first-gen low-income student. And so it's my favorite part where like our students you know who are paying it forward will actually like reach out to their former advisors and ask for help and so the students who are advising other the advisors who are advising like high school students now will actually reach out to me and say hey what college class should i take or what do you think if i major in this instead of that and so while they are still helping their community i alongside other people who are like older and have already graduated college in the circle match team are able to also offer that kind of advice because I think navigating university again as a first-gen low-income student but also as a student who attends who attended a high school where not many students went to college a high school that is disconnected from the college-going culture we you know there's very specific insights that we have and so that's kind of my favorite part I think just enabling students to care about their communities and see that it's something normal and something that's expected and something that's good that's really exciting. And, and and just to clarify, first gen means the first generation in their family to have gone to college. Right? Yeah. Okay. So first gen, or like sometimes you'll hear people say figly, which means first generation low income. And so, yeah, first generation students going to college with their family and low income or, or low income, depending on the glossary. That's really exciting. And of course, the fact that you're also teaching ethics. You know, this idea, yeah. we pay it forward and we have some loyalty and responsibility to our community to take it back. When you say we, who is involved other than you with 
obviously, that this is a huge project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a really large we to match the really large project. I think a large part of our we is, right, the students that we've advised in the past. And so that's really exciting. Or they just, again, are kind of joining us because they believe in it. And so I've had, I'm thinking right now of one student who was admitted to Vanderbilt and after she got into a bunch of universities besides Vanderbilt, I remember her texting me and she's like, Michael, I am so excited to be a college advisor. I'm going to be the best college advisor out there. I have so many resources and so many ideas and I learned so much from doing this and I want to see people grow just like me. And so she's certainly part of the we, but there's also people who maybe weren't in the program, but feel as if a community would benefit from this. And so they've also kind of joined us. And so, for example, before Circle Match existed, so we started in 2019, in June of 2019. So before that, I actually have, there's like different alumni from my high school who've reached out to me and asked to join. And they believe that they have some sort of nuanced idea, some sort of thing or belief or expertise that could really be helpful. And so that's meant that we've had people volunteer to help with our with our photography we've had people help with our like videography we've had people who've decided to step up as like their director of strategy one of my favorite stories is i remember after starting this nonprofit around january of that year the head of guidance counseling like reached out to me and said hey michael there's another former alum who was interested in doing similar work here's his name, connect with him on Facebook. I'm sure he'd love to talk more about this and see how he could join. And so that's another way that we've just kept growing. And so that's how we met our director of strategy, Max. And so what kind of happens with this is there's a lot of people who care about this so much, but there's just never really been, or maybe there has been, but I've never been privy to these conversations of, there's never been some sort of structure in place for people to really help their communities in this college advising fashion and it be hyper focused on their community. And so we has also meant getting current college students who care about their communities, who are interested in college access work and getting them to help their own communities. And so that's how we partnered with two of our four schools. One person I actually shared a, we, we were on the same floor of like a dorm building at Yale. And he was a year younger than me from East LA and really wanted to help students from his high school. Another student, her, her college advisor, because she got free college advising through another nonprofit, her college advisor shared with me that her student was really interested in college advising. She was also going to Yale. I was like, okay, great, let's have a conversation. And then she shared with me that she really wanted to help her community and that she actually had accessed our stuff in the past through our public programming. And so it's really cool to see, I can say we very confidently, and we is an ever evolving term at the same time, which is very cool. How do you help students deal with potential culture shock at Ivy League schools? Yeah, I think the first thing is having our students really like be intentional about the universities that they choose, right? Most of our students are admitted to multiple really amazing universities who are able to get lots of full rides and that's great. And so we want them to really tease out the options and really be able to understand what the differentiator is between each school. I think outside of that, there's also a kind of level of having our students, through them paying it forward, they end up actually connecting with their communities. And that, what I've noticed, has actually helped alleviate 
our students feeling at least a bit of feeling like they're imposters or feeling as if they don't fit into the school. Because in helping other students be admitted to these universities, you actually realize, oh, wait, this admissions officer didn't make a mistake on me. They accepted another student the same year or the next year from my high school. That's great. And so I think there's also a level of our students really connecting with other students who are maybe similarly first-gen low-income or connecting with students who, I don't know, maybe came from communities where not many students went to college. And so they're able to really find community there, which really is a big, big part of feeling like you fit in. Because in order to feel like you fit into like university, to a university, you have to feel like you fit into a community. And so by finding these micro communities, because like by no means, I love Yale, I love where I attended, but by no means was all of Yale first-gen low-income, or by no means is all of Yale Hispanic queer males. The point is, like, I was able to find smaller forms of community at these universities, and that's all we can ask for for our students, you know? So that's our big, I guess, thing for helping students get over all of that. What do you find, in general, how students react, not just sort of feel, but kind of act off of encountering just, you know, the giant differences sometimes in wealth and income and expectations and kids flying off to Europe for vacations and things like that. What kind of feedback do you get from from students? And what was, well, in your case, you had experienced some of those kinds of students when you were, I'm assuming, when you were in, in the private school. But how do students respond to that? I mean, it's it's difficult, right? Like our students... Many of our students have actually never really left the state. And so you go from students who've never left the state, suddenly they're leaving the state maybe for the first or second time in their lives. And they're being put in a classroom with students who are leaving the state on a weekly basis or leaving the country on a monthly basis. And so it's really difficult for our students. But again, we've created a community for them to be able to connect to their home roots. And so that makes things a lot easier and they're able to actually just laugh it off, you know? And so in creating those cultures where they're able to like laugh it off, they're able to really connect over how different their university is in comparison to their high school community. But at the same time, I think our students understand that they're going to be attending universities that were historically and structurally not made for them. And I think that's a really not so good feeling to say the least in the most like moderate terms possible it's a terrible feeling to go to a place that was not built for you but i think there is like kind of a cost benefit analysis that students need to do where they realize like while there might be moments of discomfort at this university there's also going to be an abundance of resources that i'm going to be getting because i attended said university and so our students understand that in attending these schools they are making a huge pivotal like shift in their lives and you know there's so many great things to be coming for these students and for their families and for their communities and in their sheer just being at these universities they are resisting kind of this like historically racist historically classist historically everything ist like university institution and so in them being there, they then also function as a means 
representation for other people who look like them, who've experienced similar things as them, who maybe have similar, similar financial backgrounds. And so there's so many different things that they kind of stand in to represent at these universities, and that can be really exhausting. But at the same time, our students are determined. They are our superstars, our heroes. They're such hard workers. And so to see them not only attend some of the most rigorous universities in the U.S., but also to want to help others be connected to that process because they think it'll help them in the long run, I think is really empowering and amazing to see. Michael, are there existing affinity groups, Latine affinity groups at some of these schools? Yeah, there are. But what's interesting about that, there's actually lots of education research on this. We're, we saw this kind of butt up during the affirmative action ruling where people said, oh, things like affirmative action don't work because they don't attract what low income people of color as opposed to just people of color. And so what ends up happening when universities go off of just race for admissions, they end up losing. So, well, I guess it's just not necessarily representative of everyone of all different income brackets. With that being said, it shouldn't necessarily be representative of that, which is to say that like, if you place a Hispanic person at a university, they don't need to be low income to prove their Latinidad, to prove their Hispanicness, right? And so them just being Hispanic is good enough, you know, like that's fine. And I think that when students go into these cultural centers in the past, they've actually kind of felt like, wow, these students don't look like the majority of students at my high school who I was exposed to. Like that's what happened with me personally, where I remember going to the cultural center at Yale for Hispanic students, La Casa Cultural, and you know, this isn't to say like everyone there was trying their best, but it just, the students look different from what I was used to. At my high school, I was used to just being able to speak in Spanish and everyone would understand me. And the majority of students around me were low income. When I went to a cultural center at Yale, many of the students were actually not low income who were identified as Hispanic or Latinx. And so I think our students find some kind of refuge there, like maybe a cultural refuge, but understand that culture is a multifaceted thing. It's not just ethnicity or race. There's other things that contribute to culture as well. And so when our students go to these spaces, they find some kind of community, but they'll find community in other places that aren't necessarily called cultural centers, but maybe they'll find it at a group of students dedicated, like a club meant for first-gen low-income students, or maybe they find it in a queer affinity group, or maybe they find it a group of students who are really passionate about, I don't know, environmental like welfare. And so that's just to say that our students are able to find community in different spaces. And while cultural centers are part of it, that's not the only piece. You've said that you, you know, tend to focus on Ivy League schools or other prestigious schools. And obviously there are hundreds or thousands of, of schools out there. Why have you made that decision or those decisions? And what are some of the ways that some of the students you're working with make the decisions as to where they want to go? Yeah. We help our students apply to anywhere they want to go to. I will say that the application processes to elite and selective universities is a lot more involved. So certain universities will ask students to write multiple essays, and these schools tend to be more selective, while the schools that are less selective might even ask the student not to write any essays at all, or they have an optional essay. And so in focusing on a more involved application, we're able to actually support them more because there's more things that they need to get done. 
I think the other part is that at these elite and selective universities, they generally have more funding. They generally have larger endowments. They, lar they generally have more resources to actually support our students, albeit through maybe, let's say, financial aid. Or let's say, if it's not financial aid, then through other kinds of like work study programs or through having like a winter clothing grant for our students. And so there's just more money to kind of go around and also more opportunities. I think the other thing is our students want an academic challenge. And so they want to go to a university where they're going to feel really challenged. And while university is challenging for nearly any student who goes to any kind of university, I think there's something about also being around your peers who are also seeking that same kind of academic challenge. It's really great for them and intellectually stimulating. And I think the last part is that at these universities, they have higher graduation rates because you're part of not just a college going process, but a college completion process and college completion culture. So at an Ivy League institution that has like 98 or 99% graduation rate, it's going to almost guarantee that our student will graduate at some point from this university, as opposed to attending a college with maybe a 50 or 60% graduation rate, where maybe they end up being in a not finding community or being in a community where a lot of students are then dropping out. And especially now where Latinx and Black students are facing a chronic kind of dropout rate through university, I think it's important that they go to a school where there's a strong culture of actually completion. And what about the good but not great students who probably won't get into Ivy League schools? Do you help them apply to schools and identify funding sources? Yeah, I think that what we noticed at our high schools was a that so there i think it's important to look back there and just understand like so many kids not enough adults we're facing a huge teacher shortage we're facing guidance counselor shortage we're facing just a staffing issue at high schools not everyone wants to be a teacher anymore because teaching is so much work really not enough pay and so our students are not necessarily getting supported as much as maybe they need is there's just not enough teachers. And so what ends up happening at a lot of these high schools and happened, my own personal experience was there's an underlying understanding that, hey, this kid is smart, these kids are smart, they'll figure it out on their own. And so while they will figure it out for the most part on their own, I think that, and by it, I mean the college application process. While they will figure out the college application process somewhat on their own, I think they won't necessarily be admitted to the universities that will be the most generous financially for them. And so that quickly kind of becomes an issue because then our students are not attending the cheapest schools possible for them. They're not attending the schools that are going to support them through graduation. And the other thing is for all of our students, regardless of if a student applies as rejected or admitted, they receive personalized feedback on their application with actionable goals on what they can do to improve their application, I'll be, regardless if it's considering to take calculus or hoping to earn or planning on earning an A in a specific class or joining our extracurriculars or really going for that one leadership position that they're so close to getting. And we also have public programming for our partner schools where any student, regardless of if they're in a program or not, can attend. And so these public programming calls in the past have looked like having an admissions officer and a director of financial like education and financial aid from a university go talk to students about how to negotiate their financial aid offers 
we had an Ivy League speaker panel where we had one student from each of the Ivy League schools who's the current student go talk to students about what their experience is actually like as specifically a student of color or a low-income student and what they've kind of seen to just humanize that process, humanize those schools a little bit. And we've gone past those schools now too, where we have students at not Ivy League schools also talking about their experience. And so I think partially it's a issue on our end where we don't have enough volunteers to really like make the most robust programming possible. But in the near future, we want to have um, more conversations about state schools and what they can offer and about just like non-elite colleges and what they can offer as well. But I think right now our big focus is on big ticket schools that are going to offer students close to full rides and it's most likely going to be the cheapest option. West New York and Memorial, from what you said, sound as though they're overwhelmingly Latine. And I'm curious whether, obviously, there are college admission programs and certainly many other students, African-American students, other students of color and low-income whites who face many of the same kind of issues. Have you been able to or are you aiming to kind of expand and be able to make connections with, with other communities of color? Or maybe you've already done so. Yeah, I think it has to do with just the schools that we partner with. Right now, we're partnering with four schools where the majority of students are Hispanic. And so that's just the majority of our students are also going to look like that as well. So I think that's just kind of what it is. But of course, we want to open up to other communities of color. But I think it matters that we get advisors who look like them, advisors who are from the same communities. And so that's a harder ask, I would say. You know, I'm able to offer, I used to be a college advisor in my community through this program and work specifically at Memorial High School. I think even if I were to work, one year I tried working at a school actually, our neighboring high school, I didn't have the same insights because the college application process is so, so, so specific to one's own community because the college application process will require that students write essays like, tell me about your community or tell me about a community you're part of. What's it like? What do you bring to it? What do they bring to you? And so answering a question like that, suddenly you need to be aware of the community the student's coming from to best write that essay and to best assist the the child or the student in in thinking critically about how to answer that question in a way that's both both honest, but also sells them and and puts them in a good light. And so, um, yeah, we would love to connect with more schools. That's that's our goal. We want to help, you know, high schools all over different communities. But again, I think what kind of differentiates us from other kinds of college advising programs is that we rely on something closer to grassroots organizing than actual nonprofit management, perhaps, because, you know, it's very much like every year we're at the schools working with our students. Every year we're empowering them to become these advisors who care about their community and believe that these universities are something that their students can actually achieve. You identified the next schools you want to go into? We're starting to now. I think we're looking at other schools in New Jersey just so we can really continue to build that, I guess, to build a culture of college going within the state and specifically within schools that most parents would be like, I don't want to send my kids there. Like, we want to work at those schools. You know, we want to work at the schools where maybe there's not enough grants going in that direction. Maybe there's just, I don't know, maybe they're underperforming in state standards. The point is, like, we want to work at the schools where people aren't going to college, where people aren't going to university, because that's where we believe we can make the most change. Because in helping a small cohort of students every single year, 
we're, the one thing that we haven't highlighted yet that I think is super important is that these five students become ambassadors for college access, even while they're current students in that high school. And so our students from an early on, like as soon as we start working with them, we share with them, hey, you're getting this college advising. This is really great, but not every infirmary community is. So you need to share that information with your peers. And they do that. You know, they edit their peers' essays. They tell them about the programs that we're telling them to apply for. They tell them about how to apply to college to begin with. And even in passing, maybe a student, you know, high school students can be a little bratty sometimes or like you know, high, school, high schoolers are high schoolers. And so maybe they're complaining or a little ornery about writing their personal statement in September, right? And then complaining about it in maybe their English class. Perhaps they just got four or five other kids to think, wait, personal statement, I should be writing that right now. And so in that way, it creates even more of a culture of applying to college. And we're empowering our students to do that work on their end is it shouldn't just be us doing it, but it should also be them because with knowledge comes responsibility. But that responsibility can be like, yes, it can be difficult, but it can also be really exciting to help other people. And so we want our students to understand that while they're in high school so that once they're in college, they can really see the value and the merit in it and continue to do that kind of work. Michael, you mentioned parents for whom this idea of going to a four-year college away from home may be very foreign. Do you have a program to uh, educate some of these parents? So in the past, what we've done, we're still doing now, is we've had a parent liaison in place. And so this parent liaison talks to the parents of our students as soon as the students are admitted to our program and explains to them exactly what's going on with the college application process, because it's a difficult process that ideally, well, it's a difficult but rewarding process, I would say that ideally the whole family can get involved in, right? And so we want our parents to understand that it doesn't necessarily work like it does in the movies in that like, if a student has A's and B's and has never done an extracurricular in their life, they're probably not gonna get admitted to Harvard the four year full ride and all the merits possible. Like that's just not how it goes anymore. So our parent liaison kind of explains to student to parents what this process, the application process looks like, what it looks like to support students through the college application process. And then there's periodic check-ins with parents to explain to them kind of what we're doing, what's going on like on the syllabus and on a curriculum level. And I think from there, something we're looking forward to adding shortly is more formalized parent programming where we have, you know, talks about how do you do the FAFSA? Like, what, what is the FAFSA to begin with, which is for federal financial aid? Or similarly, like, what is the CSS? You know, even me, I was so confused by that. And that's financial aid for private schools through a college board, which was not well explained to me, so I had no idea. And so I think right now a lot of that information goes to students, but not necessarily their parents. And parents want to be part of this process because parents want to see their students succeed and they want to help their students get to that point. And so the other thing is our advisors actually meet up with parents sometimes and explain kind of what's going on. If a student needs an extra push or maybe needs some extra support. And so I was talking to one student's parent who essentially the student was working on the application really last minute to apply to her dream college early decision. And the night of, I looked at the application, I was like, this isn't where it needs to be for the student to really have a solid chance. They'd have a better chance if they applied later on regular, even though the admissions rate would be lower because her application could be stronger. And so talking to that parent, 
explaining that to them, they really understood the importance of helping their student manage their time better. Because while I can work with the student for a certain amount of hours per week, I think the parents are meeting up with the student more often because they usually live in the same home. What could you tell us about these parents and these families? Yeah, so we actually recently collected a bunch of statistics after like four years of advising. And what we've noticed is the average familial income of the students we serve is $44,000. The majority of our families are Hispanic, clocking at around 82%. And then from there, we have a smaller Asian population, Black population, white population. We haven't worked with any students who are Indigenous yet, but we're looking forward to that opportunity soon. You'll also see that our students, 95% of them are on free and reduced price lunch, which means that the their high schools are actually supplying them lunch that they could have stable access to food during the school day. And also the majority of our students, a little over 80% are actually first-generation college students. So you've been doing the program for, you've had like four years of admissions to colleges. What have you been finding in terms of the success rate of the students that you're working with in terms of getting into colleges? Yeah, I mean, you'll you'll hear a lot from me that our students are really just like superstars. But on our end, there's 27 students so far who've completed the program. And that's because every year there's this huge like incremental kind of jump in how many students we serve. But of those 27 students, 100% of them were admitted to a four-year college, which is really exciting. And 96.30%, so all but one of the students chose to go to a four-year college. One student chose to go to a community college because it made more sense for her financially. You'll see that 74% of our students actually are admitted to a top 25 university or liberal arts college, which is really exciting, especially now after COVID, where these admissions rates have just plummeted. So, you know, we're talking about schools that have acceptance rates of anywhere from 4% to maybe around 15%. So it's really exciting that our students are being able to be admitted to these universities through their hard work and through kind of partnering with us. And then in total, we've had in the past four years, 143 four-year college acceptances. So our students are getting lots of options and are really excited about all of them. But yeah, we've had students be admitted to six of the eight Ivy League schools. Right now we're missing Princeton and Harvard. We've also had students be named scholars through schools like Vanderbilt and also be admitted to just really amazing universities that they're excited about. All of our students are still in college now, mostly because our oldest class, they're now going to be rising seniors, so they haven't finished yet, but we've had no dropouts. So everyone's still in school, everyone's still learning, and everyone's still thriving. That's great. What about just the whole concept of going away to college? So aside from the process, which where parents certainly want to be involved, but how about just the concept if that's not part of the culture, the idea of students actually leaving home and going someplace to study and not necessarily study something vocational for four years? Yeah, I think a big thing is having parents understand almost their why and what I mean by that is the majority of our parents right now are, are immigrants. And so this is to say they've left their country, the country they called home, 
the country that was comfortable for them, the country where they had family and community. And they left that country because they believed that the U.S. offered some sort of resource or some sort of opportunity for them. And they went for opportunity. And so I think it's talking to parents, having them understand the place you're going to get the most opportunity, the place you're going to get the most options for just like random things that your student may want to do and be able to access all the things they're going to dream of. They're going to find those things at some of these elite universities. And while it might be against the cultural like script of what maybe you've been exposed to, understand that you yourself also went against the cultural script. You decided to leave your community to go to a new one for in search of better opportunities for your children. And so your students worked so, so hard to access these opportunities and you've done such a great job parenting, right? You've helped and supported the student to excel in high school, right? To even be considered a candidate at these universities. And so now's the final point. And now's the point where you have to trust that you've done a good enough job raising your child that you know that they're not gonna go off, off the, like go off the right path. And our students do really well. Our students, in fact, excel <laughs> at these universities, especially when they're paying it forward and we're able to connect with them and support them. Where does your funding come from? Right now, a lot of our funding comes from fundraisers and also from past accelerator programs I was a part of. So I can go into the first part, then the second part. And so with fundraisers, we just finished having our second annual summer dinner fundraiser, which is really cool because it connected the entire community. We had parents come, we had students come. Our students actually got awards this year, which is really cool. I got to sign off and put my signature on things as the executive director, which is very fun. But uh, beyond that, we also have parents who, after getting the service, have chosen to donate. You know, it's not required at all, but they just believe in what we've been doing. And while it may not be like, you know, it's not millions and millions of dollars or anything like that, still any kind of money is really helpful. The other thing is our advisors volunteer their time pro bono because they believe in our programming. They believe in what we're doing and they want to help others. So that has helped alleviate a lot of the cost. And then I was also admitted to multiple accelerator programs, which essentially that means programs that have seen real potential in what we're doing and have wanted us to kind of get to the next point to accelerate for lack of better terms. So I was in one called the EGF Accelerator Fellows Program which is one of the only New York City based education nonprofit accelerators, which is a niche field, but they've seen some really cool groups like Teach for America and SEO also went through there. So really large and really powerful forces to be reckoned with like nonprofits. And then I was also in the Sci City Summer Accelerator Program. And so that was a program hosted through Yale through our entrepreneurship hub. And so I just finished actually doing that program. In the future, we're actually looking for corporate partnerships and just sponsorships on that end so that we could more so, A, because it'd be really amazing for these corporate sponsors to be able to really invest in the communities that surround them. But B, because our students could really benefit from just seeing like different kinds of corporate sponsors and like understanding what different kinds of jobs kind of could be out there for them, depending on what they choose to study and depending on what they choose to really pursue post-grad. We're also partnering with schools right now to be the sub-recipients of grants. And so 
a lot of our schools could actually apply for grants to help house us because we do need more funding to just kind of exist, especially as we get more and more kids. We need like full-time staffing. Really, we do. And when you say schools, in this case, you mean the colleges or the high schools? High schools. We do also are interested in partnering with um, universities that are located in low-income communities and having them actually potentially sponsor us to work in some of those high schools in the nearby community. Thank you so much, Michael Sanchez, and congratulations. I mean, you've really done a whole lot in a short time. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. And thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do? A collaboration with Dr. Mira Levinson of the Harvard Graduate School of Education and EdEthics. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click video. If you found this podcast worthwhile, please share it with a friend or five. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review. This helps others to find the show. Check out our website for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops and classes. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denchi. Until next week.